You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are here with my friend, Srini Rao. He is the host of the popular podcast, Unmistakable, Unmistakable Creative it's actually a little bit of a tongue twister because just like the Live Different podcast, everyone wants to say live differently. I wanted to say unmistakably creative. Uh, nevertheless, former podcast guests on his show have included people like Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss, among others. He had a very good self-published book, The Art of Being unmistakable and he has a new book out and if you're watching on YouTube right now you can see an audience of one reclaiming creativity for its own sake. Srini what's happening? Hey Matt it's uh, nice to connect with you again after such a long time. I, uh, I agree Srini I wanted to take us immediately back to I believe it was Playa Maderas in mm -hmm. Nicaragua where we knew we were both going to be there at the same time. And I don't know, somewhere in the lineup, I think that you just called my name out and said, hey, are you Matt? And uh, that's how we met. We literally met surfing. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was Playa Madaris, is that right? It was, actually. Nice. Have, yeah. uh, have, you, have you surfed? Have you... Yeah, tell me. Tell me. Let's, let's catch up real quick. Well, it's funny because the the day I met you at that place, it was such a different beach because Playa Madeiras. My my main memory of Playa Madeiras is almost drowning because um, the the one and only time prior to that that I had been to Playa Madeiras, it was like thirteen foot waves, and I got caught in a really really big set, and I got dragged underwater almost all the way to shore. Uh, it was it was a real ass kicking. So it was it was such a contrast to paddle out and look at it and you know splash around and think to myself I was like, wow, this is the same place that like I almost died. This is really weird. Yeah, it's uh, nature is a a crazy crazy thing. Have you been back down to Central America at all to to surf? No, I haven't. Not not in quite some time. Uh, I went to Sri Lanka earlier this year, and I think I'm going to be going to India uh, in December. Nice, nice. Are you, are you going to surf out there? Oh yeah. Excellent, excellent. So you've been you've been keeping up with it, right? Yep. I, I can't imagine you not surfing. That's why I ask. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's definitely been a big part of my life. Uh, you know, the last year the surf conditions have been kind of lackluster, but that that's nature. You know. Sure. It's a it's a tough sport. You got to have the uh, you kind of have the timing right. That's the thing. I haven't, I haven't honestly surfed uh, nearly as much as I would like to. Of course, I think every person who considers themselves a surfer would be, like to be out all day, every day, if they, if they could. But uh, yeah, in in Costa Rica, where I, I spend so much time, I'm in Manuel Antonio, and it's you know, it's not uh, Playa Hermosa, it's not. Tamarindo, it's not Pavones, it's not the, the spots that people think of as the most famous, uh, consistent, in Dominical even, it's not in the most consistent break, so you got to catch it right, and when you work, uh, that, you know, working seems to always get in the way of surfing. Yeah, just a bit. But, uh, anyhow, tell me, tell me some things since we last spoke i think i mean you've published two books now and uh that's that's probably a good place to start uh professionally as well you got an audience of one this is this is awesome and it looks like you've gone 
the self-publishing route uh, the first way, which I want to ask you about, and then yeah. uh, you went out and found a book deal. It, it looks like it looks like this was, uh, yeah, Portfolio Penguin. It says on the uh, side of it. Yeah. So um, I, it was right. Funny enough, it was oddly enough right around the time we met that I had sort of started really writing much more prolifically. I, I developed this habit of a thousand words a day, and it was something that I did every day, rain or shine. It didn't matter. Uh, and it was literally in 2013, right at that time that you and I, I ran into each other, that a lot of things started changed. I think right before that, I self-published a book called The Small Army Strategy, uh, which did unexpectedly really well, uh, thanks to you know some some help from people like Chris Brogan, uh, people like my friend Mars Dorian, who designed the cover. Uh, and that book ended up selling a thousand copies. And I thought, okay, this is cool. Like I, I can, I can self-publish books. I can, you know, put small messages into books and, uh, people bought it. And, uh, you know, then, so I thought, okay, well in that case, I, I imagine no publisher is coming to knock on my door anytime soon. So I'm just going to, uh, self-publish books. I think so often we wait for permission to, uh, do something that we, we want to do. We think that we need the permission of a publisher to, to produce books, but there's a, a real sort of irony to the world that we live in, in that, uh, you kind of have to give yourself that permission and, and that, you know, the publisher doesn't create a marketplace for you or an audience for you. They come to you because you already have one. Uh, we followed up Small Armory Strategy with another book called The Art of Being Unmistakable, which was like uh, freakishly successful through a series of very like, bizarre coincidences. Uh, ended up on the Glenn Beck show of all places, which I never in a million years would have expected. I didn't even know who Glenn Beck was in 2013. Uh, and that book ended up becoming a Wall Street Journal bestseller uh, as a self-published book that uh, in all honesty is not particularly super well written uh it's riddled with a lot of typos the layout is shitty uh but the the funny thing is the message resonated with a lot of people i think that that is something we all fear people fear making mistakes people fear you know not doing everything perfectly so as a result they don't do shit and i'm the opposite of that i'm willing to make you know make mistakes and i've had you know people call me out on it somebody was like oh you need a proofreader you need an editor i'm unsubscribing from your list i'm like great you know um if, if you bothers you that much fine, you know, proofread it for me then, you know, I, I don't really, uh, or it, it's so much easier to criticize somebody than it is to create. And so, uh, and not often you notice it's the people who create nothing who criticize the most. Uh, yeah. And it's, I think that that Brene Brown thing, you know, where she says, you know, unless you're in the arena with me getting your ass handed to you, I'm not really that interested in your feedback. Uh, that would be wrong. Like I, I look at the, the, you know, audience that, appreciate my work and I appreciate them, but people who don't like it, I, I'm not, I'm not in the business of catering to the lowest common denominator. And I don't think anybody should be, uh, if my work doesn't appeal to some people, so be it. And it doesn't, uh, I think that it's ridiculous to think that you're going to have just, you know, across the board appeal. It's that old saying, right? If you've created something for everyone, you've effectively created something for no one. So that, um, you know, eventually, uh, the self-published book led to a book deal with a publisher about two years after uh, the self-published book came out. An editor at Penguin contacted me and said, I want to talk to you about a book. And we were talking about first them buying my self-published book and, and having me revise and expand it. Uh, that ended up uh, being different because I just wrote a whole new book from scratch. And then uh, another thing that happened was uh, it ended up being an offer for two books instead of one. Um, the second book of which uh, was Audience of One. It was based on this idea of a thousand words a day. But the more that we thought it out, the more we flushed it out, we realized like this is a book that's not just for writers. It's a book for anybody who does any, something creative. And so that's, that's how we've kind of arrived at where we're at today. Um, you know, obviously, Unmistakable Creative Podcast, as you mentioned, is, is what I'm most 
mostly known for, uh, where I've done 700 plus interviews and, uh, you know, the show has just kind of grown organically over the better part of 10 years. And so, yeah, that's, that's the gist of where we're at now. That's awesome. Well, you've been trucking away, uh, wow, for almost 10 years. I think I can remember actually where I was. I was in Breckenridge, Colorado, and I was a guest uh, on your podcast. It might have been in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Probably. Yeah, it was, I was running under 30 CEO at the time, and I think that's when we, we very first connected online before, of course, our, our meeting that we talked about in 2013 there in, in Nicaragua. Yeah. Uh, but pretty cool to, to see you just uh, being so consistent. And, of course, I want to ask you about 1,000 words a day in a little bit, but uh, I'd love to know where you developed your authenticity because – you really seem to know, and, and you talk about this, of course, in the book about uh, putting out stuff, as you just alluded to, uh, well, as you say, as an, for an audience of one, it's authentic, it's authentic as to what you want to put out there, and as so many book titles uh, seem to be coming out with, you don't give a fuck, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's for you, it's not for them, uh, so to speak, so could, could you tell us about that a little bit? So uh, I think you're fitted out a little bit on the audio. You said you want to know where the discipline comes from? Uh, the authenticity. Ah, okay. Well, that's a really good question because I think that, uh, you know, when anybody starts out creating something, the natural instinct is, oh, I want to create this and, and the, you know, approval of an audience really matters here. And I, I noticed this uh, probably right around 2013 where I, I did a couple of things. One is I turned off comments on my blog because I realized that, when there were comments and I knew there would be comments and I knew people would say something, I would hold back in terms of the way that I would write. Um, no matter w whether it was authentic or not, I think subconsciously when you know that there's going to be people who comment on your work, you tend to, to you know, you tend to, to sugarcoat it. You tend not to be as raw. And so I turned off comments uh, and I noticed that suddenly I had this just freedom to, to write in a way that I never had before. That was a big one. But the thing is that this uh, approval seeking mechanism is, is go, goes far back, well beyond sort of this idea of, of seeking approval from an audience for your work. It's, it's baked into our social programming from the time we grow up. You know, you go through school where you're ranked and categorized in terms of how smart you are or how popular you are. And popularity is, is literally, you know, the ultimate sort of approval seeking mechanism. Uh, then you get to, to college or whatever in your career, right? So your approval seeking mechanism is, oh, am I going to make my parents proud? Am I going to be, you know, in the eyes of society, somebody who's successful in the eyes of society, somebody who's worth paying attention to. So you create lists like Forbes 30 under 30 or, you know, whatever fast companies, hundred most creative people in business. And more and more, the, these, these approval seeking mechanisms are, are kind of silly because what you start to realize, and the only reason this is fresh on my mind is because I was writing about it this morning is that mostly when we seek approval of other people is because we largely don't approve of ourselves. Uh, and I found that to be true in my own life. And that plays out in virtually every year of your life. It, it plays out in, you know, your dating and relationship life. So like, if you don't approve of yourself, you'll, you know, pursue people who are into you. You'll try to force chemistry when there clearly isn't any, when in all reality, if you approved yourself, you'd walk away and be like, I can find somebody better. Who's more excited about me. it's that whole Mark Manson, fuck yes or no thing, right? People who approve of themselves are like, if it's not an, you know, the fuck yes, then peace, I'm out. You know, I, I'm not interested in, in people who are lukewarm about me. Um, I think the same thing goes for your work. And, and what we don't realize is so often 
you, other people are not going to live with the consequences of the choices that you make or the work that you create. And when you finally get that, then you get to a place of authenticity. That's awesome. So can you take us through the process a little bit more? I mean, uh, of finding your voice and finding an authentic voice for us? Yeah, I think the term finding your voice is uh, actually misused. I think you don't have to find your voice. You have to connect with your voice. Uh, the thing is that it's buried under the fact that you've never done anything that forces you to use your voice. It gets buried under the fact that you've spent your whole life being conditioned simply to do what you've been told to do. And so as a result, your voice is, is buried under all of this sort of validation field facade. Um, and where that starts to, to really reveal itself is, is from sitting down and doing the work. Uh, I, I think that one of my, my old friends commented, you know, when I started this, this thousand word a day habit, she said, watching what you've done in six months, it's almost like you've made six years in progress. Uh, just from this one habit. And uh, what's funny is, is, you know, and I look back at it now and say, okay, well, that time I, I didn't necessarily agree, but I, I mean, I still write a thousand words a day. I've finished two books and you, I mean, people are like, what are you doing the next morning? I'm like, well, the same thing I do every morning I'm, I'm going to write, uh, because that's, that's what, that's the work, you know, that, that's the work of a writer. It's, yeah, you, know, you come back from doing all these interviews and, and, you know, doing all this stuff and I, I'm back here and, you know, I'm, I'm working on an outline for another book and I'm, I'm writing every day. Uh, nothing has changed. It, it's and so that's really how you find your voice or how you connect with your voice. I think that the the term finding your voice is very misleading because the assumption of that is that you've lost your voice and you haven't lost your voice. It's just been buried. You've not heard it. You've not connected with it. And you connect with it by creating. Sure, sure. I think it's it's often that people have never had their voice to begin with. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of the soul searching. Who do I? How do I want to write? What do I want to write about? What am I actually trying to say here? Uh, but with a thousand words a day, that should actually be no problem. You should put in the reps, yeah. I, I would say. Well, and then the other thing I think that, that I want to dispel is the notion that that thousand words a day is, is like all good. You know, a good amount of it is awful. Uh, sure. But I'm okay with that because you like research shows that basically the the highest way to increase the quality of your creative output is to increase the volume of your creative output simply because you get more practice and i, I think that there's this other idea that you have to publish every single thing that you you write and that's far from the truth if you had to pub if i had to publish everything i write my online presence would be laughable but i think uh, maybe a tenth of what i create on a daily basis actually makes it out into the world Sure. And you actually have a part in your book where you say it's kind of a duh moment or a duh statement. Uh, it might seem obvious, but a lot of people probably don't get this, that uh, the, you say something to the effect of the biggest breakthroughs. People with the biggest breakthroughs are people who put out the most volume. Yeah, it I mean, makes perfect sense. Go, go look at, you know, like it's not a coincidence that Seth Godin is the writer that he is. If you write a blog post every day, I mean, it's really funny, but he said in quotes, he's like, it took a long time to blog like me. But, you know, it's the genius of Seth Godin is he can say a lot with very few words. But if you wrote, a, a, you know, 6,000 or 7,000 blog posts in a row and hadn't missed a day, you would probably get good. But people don't like, you know, the thing that people don't like is the fact that that takes time. Time is a, a critical ingredient in, in building an audience and, and building, you know, quality work. And I, I wrote this piece on Medium where it, the title was, the, this is the only viable strategy for building an audience for your work. 
And we spend a lot of time uh, on tactics, on promotion, on marketing, and we don't spend nearly as much time on the work itself. Like very few people talk about how to actually make good work. Almost every piece of content is about how to market and promote your work. Very people, you know, nobody talks about it. Wait a minute, like maybe you should make something that's worthy. Instead of the question of how do I build an audience for this, the question should be how do I build something that's worthy of an audience's attention? So do you just put pen to paper every single morning or what do your outlines look like? Because I think a lot of people would disagree and would say, well, first I want to have a plan for what I need to write and I know who my audience is, right? People say that all the time. Oh, know your audience, know your audience. Okay, yeah. here's what they want to know, X, Y, Z. Let me outline it, fill in the blanks, boom, boom, boom. Those are my tasks for the day. Are you saying that that should should you no, just no, no, no. yeah no, no, no. so like I have productivity systems but I, I think the you know I mean my my entire life is driven by systems but the idea that you're here's the thing like there are a lot of people who have to outline before they write but the thing is that a lot of people spend far more time planning than they do creating and as a result they create nothing um, it's it, it's easy to delude yourself into doing thinking that you're doing something when you're actually doing nothing. Um, when you get, you know, caught up in planning. So you could outline until you're blue in the face, but it doesn't really count until you actually put words to paper and the funny or pen to paper. And the thing is that when you put pen to paper, what you'll realize is the outline is more of a compass than a map. Uh, yes, I outline stuff. Yes, I plan stuff, but I write down ideas. And, and the thing that people don't realize is that most of your best creative ideas are going to come from the act of actually doing this thing. Like I, you know, I, I put pen to paper and it might be three, four pages, it might be 600 words before I'm like, Oh, wait, wait a minute. Like I, that idea that, you know, uh, approval seeking is, is, you know, something that causes so much harm to us. That was like 700 or 800 words into my writing session this morning before the, the words before were like very incoherent and unclear. And, uh, I was like, fuck, I'm like, this makes no sense. I'm like, I'm struggling to, to get an idea. Out. And then boom, like that, it happens. So no, I, I don't think that, um, you know, I'm not saying that none of those things are valuable. You know, having a plan is, is definitely valuable. That hence the reason I have a very clear goal of a thousand words. I just think that people try to set goals and, and have outcomes that are completely out of their control, um, which is a recipe for not only disaster, but disappointment. No, I, I think that's a, a very good point, uh, Srini. So I have a, a forty pay, a forty chapter book proposal written, and I have chapter by chapter outline. I mean, the proposal I will say is a what I would consider a work of art. That was my creative output. But the funny thing is, when I've told I don't know maybe ten, fifteen people now, you and thousands of people listening, uh, people will say congratulations. I'm like, congratulations? I haven't written the fucking thing yet. Are you kidding me? Congratulations. Yeah. Or I'll have a, I have a, a couple meetings about the, uh, about the proposal and people are yeah. like, Oh, congratulations. I'm like, I, I gotta write it. it it's it. the, uh, the Ronnie Coleman. I don't know if you know this reference, but he's a bodybuilder. Look him up if you have it, Ronnie Col Coleman. And he say, says, uh, ain't nothing to it, but to do it. I mean, that's yeah. a, you still got to you still got to do it. So please don't congratulate me yeah. on anything. Ryan, Ryan Holiday talked about this actually on Unmistakable Creative. He said, you know, like we live in this world of like social media and where you can, you know, uh, get congrats. He said it's stupid because you can say, oh, you know, I, I, I submitted an outline. Like Ryan actually said something really interesting to me. He said he never talks about a book until he's finished writing it, which I thought, wow, this is a guy. I was like, the guy wrote six books in six years something to that um he said you know because he said you're like oh you're being congratulated for this thing that you haven't even fucking done yet right. which is ridiculous no i i, I completely agree um so Srini, i wanted to ask you actually 
about the thousand words, of course, people might, I, I think people get hung up on that a little bit. And I'm, I'm curious if you think that's the gold standard or, or if you're a uh, 10,000 hour Malcolm Gladwell type of guy, or uh, is this a one size fits all prescription for people listening? No. Nothing is a one-size-fits-all prescription. Uh, like literally nothing in life is a one-size-fits-all prescription from advice on success, from advice on fitness to advice on, on making money to creative habits. Like absolutely not. But the thing is that it's a – we tend not to look at advice as frameworks and we tend to view it as formulas. Whereas if we viewed it as a framework, we can take what works for us and discard the rest. So no. Um, as far as the thousand word a day idea goes, I mean, you could write 500 words a day. The whole point of it is not the number itself, but it's having some sort of process or system that's reliable, that's in your control, that leads to consistent creative output. Because if you want to increase your creative output, you have to have a system. Like there's no way that you can operate in the world that we live in today without a system. People people don't understand that it, you know, books don't fall out of the sky because authors are inspired to sit down one weekend and like write the great American novel. Uh, they happen because people have systems and habits and routines and rituals that they follow. Mine happens to be a thousand words a day, but you could do 500 words a day. You could do three sentences a day. You could do one hour a day. It doesn't really matter. What's interesting though, is that, um, as you, stick to the schedule, you'll be able to keep increasing the scope. Um, you know, so James Clare had once said, you know, he said, you know, like reduce the schedule, but stick to the scope. So like if you can't do a thousand words, you do 200 words. The, the whole point is you just want to get in the habit of falling through. And if you get in the habit of falling through, that's when you start to build momentum. You know, momentum is the byproduct of doing something on a consistent basis. It's not the byproduct of inspiration or standing still. No, I, I, I could not agree more. And that's my biggest with writing, that's my biggest roadblock is, well, sounds dumb, but actually doing it, actually putting pen to paper. And I struggle because I try to get up early and that's the first thing that I like to do every morning. But if I open up my computer and there might have been something still on my screen or, yeah, I probably got a message somehow, snuck through, I try not to check my email, you know, the, all that stuff that you deal with. And I have I have a little bit of anxiety every morning if I have other pending items and I'm not up early enough to crush yeah. the writing before uh, before I get on to the tasks that well, really matter. Yeah, I mean, and okay, so that, that's a good point, right? You say, okay, well, like to me, my writing is a task that really matters. It's a bigger priority than my email and everything else. So I don't actually start the day with any devices. I leave my phone out of the room when I'm working. Uh, I have noise cancellation headphones. I don't do meetings before 10 a.m. I, I think that you know, most of these things have to be a deliberate choice. Like most people's lives are set on what uh, Colin Wright calls default settings. Uh, they don't change the ring on their iPhone. They don't change the settings on the apps that they have. So, of course, their lives are filled with, like, endless and pointless fucking notifications. They work with, like, multiple browser tabs open. They have email open. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. If you're doing this, there's no way you're going to be able to manage your attention long enough to get something of meaning or significance done because you got a thousand other things that are far more trivial competing for your attention. Like, most people suck at managing their attention, partially because of the fact that they don't do things to – they don't minimize the amount of things – competing for their attention, uh, which is, is easy to do. You use distraction blockers. You basically work according to set schedules. Uh, I, I think that you can't really argue with the fact that Facebook is kind of addictive and kind of useless for the most part. Uh, you know, it's just become the kind of thing that we, we've, it's become such a, a sort of 
secondary part of our lives. Like it's all, you know, Mark Zuckerberg called it a utility and you're kind of like, well, yeah, at this point it, it kind of is in the sense that, you know, it is almost like electricity. It's kind of an omnipresent thing in most people's lives, but the value of it is, is questionable. Like, uh, Cal Newport had a really interesting blog post where he said, you know, of all the billion dollar companies, he said, Facebook is the most valuable company that is the most disposable because if Facebook were to disappear, uh, yeah, you'd probably be like, okay, this is a little annoying, but you wouldn't miss it all that much, I don't think. Like, your life would go on. Whereas if Apple, Amazon, or Google disappeared, your life would be very inconvenient. Um, and, and Facebook doesn't have that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that we, we really, like, distraction is, like, we're at a point where we have a distraction epidemic at this point, And it, there's no question that a lot of these tools are to blame for it. So it's, it's really about deciding, you know, what matters and, and making deliberate choices about how you're going to spend your day, particularly the early parts of your day. Absolutely. And competition, this cannot be, uh, <clears throat> this cannot be overstated. Competition is fierce. Millions of billions, literally billions of dollars are being invested into capturing your uh, it, it, your attention. I mean, it is just incredible. These things are made so that they are physically addictive. Uh, all of it. I mean, everybody knows that they're competing against the next app, against the next notification, etc. To compete yeah. for that, yeah, that that little bit of attention. So, uh, yeah, it, that can't be overstated. Uh, Serena, I wanted to ask you about your system for writing, uh, if you yeah. don't mind. And I'm glad that you mentioned your priority is writing. My priority, uh, if as far as my work goes, is to under 30 experiences my company, and writing is just a side thing. Uh, so I try to get up extra early to do it, but you're in a different ballgame, it sounds like. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I write books for a living. So, of course, writing is, is a big priority for me. Like, it has to be. I, I don't think it, it's the most important thing that I do. Yeah, I give speeches and yeah, I, I run a podcast. But, like, I, I looked at it. I said, all right, but what are the, the, the people don't realize? And, and you know, I'll, I'll walk you through the sort of routine and the system and all the, the nuances of it that make it work. But if you look at it this way, there are only a handful of activities in your life that actually generate meaningful results in your life. So, I know if I write, I can write books, which pay me money. I can write articles, which lead to email subscribers, which lead to more money, which lead to more books. Okay, So writing becomes an incredibly valuable thing. I get paid to do speaking engagements. So reaching out to potential speaking opportunities is valuable. Um, I also, you know, we get paid to, to have advertisers on the podcast. The podcast is my biggest platform. It's what people know me for. That's valuable. Those are the really probably the three most valuable things that I do every day. Everything else is, is pretty irrelevant. And most people have that. If they're really brutally honest with themselves, they would see that most of the value that they're generating in their lives most of the true value comes from maybe three activities, if that. Uh, so as, as far as the, the system goes, I mean, I wake up at 6 a.m., I meditate for 10 minutes, I set a coffee to brew while I'm meditating, so that way you know, I can kind of tap into that whole cure, routine, reward thing that Charles Duhigg wrote about. So uh, I get done with my meditation, I'm rewarded with my cup of coffee. And then I sit down and I read for 30 to 35 minutes. And I read before I write for one reason, because if you read before you write, you prime the brain. It's much easier to write when you've actually read something. Uh, you know, Danny Shapiro says, you know, if you fill your ears with the music of good sentences, that will carry you. And I find that to be true. Uh, so the next thing I do is I open up a moleskin notebook and 
often what I'll do is I'll actually use a quote from something that I've been reading just to get something on the page. And this is actually something that people don't realize. Like blank pages are really daunting. And one of the easiest ways to deal with that is to just use a quote. And there's a couple of reasons this is super effective. One is the fact that your brain makes progress towards a goal based on the perceived distance to that goal. Uh, so let's say that your goal is a thousand words. Well, when you put a quote on the page or let's say your goal is three, you know, uh, handwritten pages inside the notebook. Well, you put a quote on the page, suddenly the perceived distance is shorter. So you're going to accelerate your progress towards getting to that three pages or to that thousand words. Uh, after I write for uh, about, you know, three page, three to four pages or 30 minutes. Uh, I also have noise cancellation headphones on the whole time. I don't keep my phone in my room when I'm writing and reading. Um, I think the phone is, is the biggest distraction. I think the fact that we do so many things to, to try to like, you know, install apps and all this shit when really you could just be like, you know what, I'm just going to leave this out of the room. I don't need it right now. Uh, if you're serious about doing creative work, then you should make sure that you reduce all forms of interference. And the phone is one of the biggest ones. So I keep it out of the room for the first three hours of the day. I don't use, uh, so I'll turn on my computer around seven 30 or eight, depending on how long I'm writing my notebook. Um, I use a distraction blocker called rescue time and block distractions for about two hours. Uh, and then I'll write, uh, I use a distraction free writing tool as well. And I'll, I'll keep going until I hit a thousand words. And sometimes I'll get past a thousand words and I'll write, you know, 2000 words. If I'm deep in flow, I think that one of the things that we do that I think is really harmful is that we stop working when we get right into the zone. You're like, wait a minute, this is when the good stuff is starting. That's like leaving the blackjack table when you're on a hot streak. You don't do that. Um, you know, so you, you just let it like go. But, uh, so, you know, and I've repeated that every single day for at this point, probably five years. I mean, since you definitely, since you last saw me and, uh, yeah, at that beach and inevitably momentum builds. So like if you're writing a thousand words a day, think about it, like 365,000 words a year, a book is 50,000 words. You're going to have a lot of words. Um, I think on average, I probably will write a million words in two years, maybe more. Um, I, I would be surprised if my output isn't more than a thousand words a day, but I, I aim for a thousand no matter what. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's the gist of it. It's, it's not complicated. Uh, um, it's not sexy. It's really simple. Uh, it just takes the discipline to do it. And I think that a lot of people, what they try to do is they try to use willpower to, to do this. So a couple of, of ways to avoid the need for willpower when it comes to this and that it all comes down to how you design your physical environment uh, because all of your behavior is largely a byproduct of your environment. So if you think about it, uh, it's not a coincidence that if you hang out with jackasses, you become one. Uh, like you really are, you do become a byproduct of your environment. And this goes as far as, as, you know, even economic circumstances. So if you look at people, uh, who grew up in poverty, who grew up around a lot of crime, they're much more likely to, to end up in that kind of a life. It, you know, nobody's born a serial killer, like the environment makes them into one. Uh, and so, you know, that's a morbid way of looking at this, but let's talk about it from the standpoint of, of designing an environment from a, a physical space perspective. So it, like if, if you have you know lousy food to eat in your fridge, you're much more likely to eat lousy food. Whereas if you have nothing but healthy stuff in your fridge, you're probably going to be you know much more healthy naturally. So there's there's that. Uh, but as far as setting up your desk, so I put everything on my desk the night before. Now there's a reason that this works. I put out a notebook, I put out a pen, and I put out the book that I'm going to read in the morning along with my headphones. Uh, and the reason this works is because of a concept known as activation energy, which is a principle from physics. Which activation energy is basically the number of steps required. Between you and the particular action that you want to take. So the fact that I don't have to get the notebook off the shelf, 
the fact that the pen is already there, the fact that the book is already there, that means I'm much more likely to follow through on the habit. So what you're doing basically is you're reducing the activation energy to follow through on this one thing. Same thing that you, and you can use the same thing for habits that you want to avoid. So if you want to avoid distraction, you increase the activation energy by using a tool like rescue time where you block distractions for two hours and suddenly you're not able to, to access, you know, pointless distractions. I think that we, you really, your environment has to be set up as a deliberate choice. Like you can't expect that you're going to overcome it using willpower. Um, and that's where most people fail with this. Sure. And in life, life needs to be a deliberate choice or else there's just too many external factors that are, are pushing you in a million different ways. And you can get lost out there. You're just blowing the wind to, to absolutely nowhere. Uh, Srini, I, I loved... Uh, or I thought it was very interesting, actually, what you said about reading before writing. Now, I've always taken the approach that I want to start from a blank slate. And I do my meditation, actually, to clear my thoughts, to disconnect mm -hmm. from my thoughts, not to have no thought, but to, to clear that and then have a blank slate and write as to not have outside influences in my writing. I'm curious what you think of that. I think everybody has outside influences in their writings. We're all byproducts of what we consume, right? So what you consume will determine what you create. It's not a coincidence that I write nonfiction, you know, prescriptive books about, you know, habit formation and behavioral science because because if you looked at my bookshelf, that's 90% of what I read is that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I think that I, in my mind, I, I think it's way easier to write if you read before you write. I, I think we're all influenced by other writers. It would be silly to think we're not. Um, so, so, you know, and it, it, this varies from person to person. Some people can sit down and, and they can, they can write. I, to me, like I know the difference. If I read before I write, it's a, it's night and day. Cause a lot of my ideas are sparked by something that I read. And I think that effectively, like in my mind, reading without trying to write without reading is like trying to cook without any ingredients. Uh, you know, you look at, at what you, you, you know, the writing, the reading gives you ingredients and your writing is your own recipes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I've, I've always kind of thought of it the opposite. And I said, I don't want any outside information. And of course you're absolutely right. We all have our our influences, uh, but I've yeah. I've never played around with that. Uh, I'm curious as kind of going into the weeds about writing, but a lot of this can be taken to other creative uh, pursuits. Much much like you said with your book, it's not just about yeah. writing; it's about creativity in in general. Um, you know, I I actually I do enjoy reading other good stuff. Uh, especially while I'm writing and I see it's, it's like I don't know I like to watch comedy because I think oh yeah I can use a little bit of that uh, at some point in it during my day and let me sprinkle let me sprinkle that in and and I feel like that actually makes me a funnier person hanging out with funny people uh, on oh. YouTube right so yeah um, I, so I downloaded some Michael Lewis, uh, I've, one of his books, one of the, these on the on Silicon Valley, I can't remember what the name of it is, but he's one of my very favorite writers. And I was writing something, and I thought, oh, I wish I could describe this as Michael Lewis would. Maybe I should attempt. And then I said, no, because that's not, that wasn't my, that wouldn't have been consistent with my style, at least in the piece that I was writing then. So I kind of left it, let it go. But I'm curious if you have those moments where you creep in, where you, uh, 
like somebody else's style so much that you try to emulate it, right? Like I'm yeah. sure you do this in sur in surfing. You like, ah, oh, I saw that guy do do this. I'm gonna put a little bit of that pizzazz into my style. Uh, do you ever do you ever have to consciously just let that go and and be yourself? Yeah, you know what? I I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing because what you're doing effectively is is this is kind of how deliberate practice works when it comes to writing. You know, one of the things that Anders Ericsson wrote about in his book Peak is is that if you looked at Benjamin Franklin and how he became such a skilled writer, is he would look at things that he looked up to, pieces of, of really high quality writing, and he would try to replicate them uh, using his own words or, or go back, you know, go back. He like, so I'll, I'll do that. Sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, I, I think for me, Stephen Pressfield is one of those people where I'm like, okay, I like Stephen Pressfield's work because he packs a lot of punch. You know, he can write, uh, three sentences and you're just like, fuck, that's like, you know, motivating. It's like a kick in the ass. And so I, I, I do do that sometimes. I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, you know, and, and then I think part of, part of finding your own style is, is emulating others and then discard, you know, like your, the, the problem is that people try to just emulate one person, whereas I borrow from multiple influences. Sure. Sure. No, that, that's, that's fantastic. Do you ever have any, uh, do you ever have the opposite effect where you read somebody and uh, I'll give you an example. You brought up Mark Manson. And when I read Mark Manson's uh, book on, on not giving a fuck, I kind of cringed inside because he was like the not very empathetic version of me. It triggered something inside of me a little bit where I was like, oh, this guy's really a jackass. I, I, I don't like when I... Uh, speak this way about others, and so I said, I I like to be hard, a little harsh in my my writing, uh, but I don't want to be Doctor Phil here. Uh, sure. Do you ever, do you ever have moments like that when you read something and it's you're like, oh, yeah, I, let me I, not be like this. Well, yes, yeah, I, I definitely do, and I, sometimes, I, I, although I do think sometimes when I, I do come across something like that, much like yourself, like I always think, okay, well, this triggered something in me. I wonder, you know, what that says about me. Like I have friends who write stuff that you know sometimes pisses you off, and you're like, okay, well, you know what? Like, yeah, this pisses me off, but probably because it triggered something in me, which that's worth looking at and saying, okay, why does this piss me off? But I, I agree, you know, like I'm not, I'm not looking to to attack people with my writing. And, and, you know, at, at the same time, like you can't really argue with the results of that book. It sold God knows how many copies at this point. And um, I think that, you know, I think if, if this takes us brings us almost full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, where if you're doing your work and in, in sort of the need of approval for others, your work is going to become watered down. Uh, you don't want to cater to the lowest common denominator. The fact that he pissed you off and you thought it was a jackass was that's good. I mean, that means he's polarized. Um, and if you polarize people, you're going to have a much more resonant body of work. Sure. No, make, makes a lot of sense. And, um, I appreciate that you brought, you bring up self-awareness, which is such a, such an important part of creativity. Uh, Srini, somebody said to me something interesting. It was a, a actress friend of mine in New York and she said that uh, she actually went to therapy while she was beginning her acting career because she felt that, or at least she was told this, maybe this is a thing in acting that a lot of people know, but you have to be very clear about who you are before you start to uh, emulate that is not the right, before you start to act and start to embody a different personality. Do you ever, do you ever feel that way in 
your writing or, or to give you another example of what I'm what I'm trying to say here I uh, I spoke with an artist one time and she told me yeah I really have to be in a good place emotionally before I start my art or things will really go off the rails for me I thought it was really interesting you ever feel that way um, yes and no. I, I think that, you know, so we, we can use the, the thing is I like I see even emotional pain mostly as material for, you know, a lot of the work that I do, because a lot of it is in, informed by like difficult periods. But I think there's a difference between um, processing it through your work. Uh, while you're in the midst of it and processing it through your work after you've you've actually gone through it after you've gone through it I think you end up uh, you know if your your pain becomes a part of your art It's done from a place of service Whereas when you you're using it as a way of dealing with it when you're going through it Then it, it becomes a form of pity almost so Srini so much of your book is about being creative for the sake of creativity or for yep. the fulfillment that you get out of the creative process, not uh -huh. for the final product, not yeah. for the output that someone else is going to read. Can you talk to the audience a little bit more about what creativity means to you and the fulfillment that you get? Yeah. Uh, I, I think for me, the one is that you look at sort of the end product and how the audience responds and how many people like it and how they approve, and you have no control over that. And yet we put so much weight on that part of this and we create all these expectations. And then when uh, something doesn't live up to our expectations, we end up getting really disappointed. And, and that just is, is a recipe for misery. So I, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. One of my friends you know, had asked me two or three times, he said, hey, do you know how many copies of the book sold? And I said, to be honest, no, I haven't even asked. And, and I haven't even, you know, like there are a lot of authors who will go on to Amazon and they'll just check and refresh their fucking ranking until they're blue in the face. And I, I don't even have an idea what the ranking is because I, I realized it was like, this is a recipe for madness. Like that's, that just is a, is a recipe for anxiety. Like I, my friend has probably seen the ranking of my book more times than I have. Um, because I, I'm just not, I'm not interested. Like here's why I'm not interested. One, I can't control it Two, looking at the ranking. Isn't going to change a fucking thing about whether people would buy the book or not. Um, it's irrelevant in terms of, of what I control in this process. And so I, I think that we've, we've done ourselves a great disservice in terms of, of the fact that we've quantified virtually every aspect of our culture with, you know, likes and fans and followers and, you know, ranking and, and hierarchy and all of which is, is artificial and made up anyways through social media, because the reality is like, there's a person who has a million followers on Instagram, like, just another schmuck buying coffee at Starbucks. The barista probably has no idea who they are, but you've basically created this sort of artificial sense of celebrity and this delusional sense that you're famous when in all reality, you're nobody. All of us are. Um, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are famous. Seth Godin, I bet your grocery, your, the clerk at your grocery store has no idea who he is. Uh, so that's the thing that we, we really have to get our hands around, head around is that we've done ourselves a great disservice because of this. And the thing is that the process is where you spend the majority of your time. So if the whole thing is all about, oh, this end product that I, I have to achieve this end result, um, you know, it, it's, it's a recipe for you will inevitably be disappointed. It's not an easy thing to and again, easy to say, hard to do. We live in a culture that reinforces, you know, this sort of drive towards results. Sure. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Stephen Pressfield, and I'm curious. He talks a lot about how his creative 
path, if you will, is to, to him it's a really spiritual thing that he does every day. It's a spiritual practice for the words to flow through him. I, I don't know if he goes into it and exactly how he said it. It's, it's a while since I read that, but I've heard so many creatives talk about, wow, yeah, it was just like I completely disconnected in this present time and place, and I was just there, and I didn't know I was there for four hours, but the words were just flowing through me or through the paintbrush, and I felt like it wasn't even me. I was so in that moment, and look what came of it. Here's this amazing thing, but it's not about the amazing thing. It was about that practice and that oneness and that union that I felt. Uh, do you feel it on that level? Yeah, of course. I mean, and that's that's the that's the the motivation for why you do these things. Uh, and and you know, that's sustainable. Like you can experience that every day. You don't get to experience moments in the spotlight every day. And so I think that if you're obsessed with, you know, your name in shining lights or, you know, uh seeing your your picture on the cover of magazines, you're you're going to be really disappointed because, you know, yeah, you might accomplish those things, but the fulfillment that you get from them won't last. Sure. I do do you feel that way during your uh, during your meditation practice and while you're surfing? Surfing, definitely. I don't know about the meditation practice. Meditation practice is still a work in progress. Interesting. Interesting. That That's that's really cool. Um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting to, to hear. I see you have uh, like some prayer flags up behind you. I don't know if, if that's yeah. how you refer to them as, uh, but do you have any other spiritual practices? I'm curious now. Well, I mean, the journaling is a spiritual practice. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I do see my creativity as a spiritual practice because it brings a great deal of fulfillment to my life. Sure. And, and does it matter to you if people receive the message that you're trying to put out there as a, I mean, message from God working through you, if you will? Well, look, I mean, if you're asking me if the results don't matter at all to me, that would be ridiculous. I, I would be lying to you if I told you I don't care, like, if my book sells copies. Of course I sell, care how it sells, you know, like, that it sells. But I also, you know, I'm hyper aware at this point in my life of, of the fact that there are elements of, of this that I have no control over. And, and you know, we here's, – here's what it boils down to. Anxiety is basically – control trying to control what you can't depression is trying to change what you can't that's what i've realized and um you know creativity shouldn't be either of those things sure sure no that that makes a lot of sense uh yes yeah, rini it's been it's been fun to really pick at the little nuances in this uh in this message that i think is so important and i agree with by the way uh and I, yeah, I just, uh, it's just so interesting to me. I love having these types of conversations. I love seeing people who are passionate about what they do and getting, sure, getting a message out to them and, and how, how deep, how deeply they really feel uh, about that uh, at, at their core. So this has been fantastic. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. No, you, you're very welcome, Serini. Uh, of course, your book. I'll flash it here on the screen, an audience of one, recla reclaiming creativity for its own sake. And Serena, if people want to reach out to you personally, get in touch, be part of your community, where can yeah. they find you online? 
So podcast is unmistakable creative. It's uh, you can find it everywhere that podcasts are available, iTunes, etc. Um, you know the book is available on Amazon anywhere where books are sold, and then uh, Twitter is probably one of the places where I'm more active at unmistakable CEO and same handle on Instagram as well. Thanks, Rainy. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Listeners, if you have been a listener for a while, you probably know my own personal story, my hero's journey, if you will, about quitting my life in New York, living on Wall Street, being stressed out, not taking care of myself, and going on an epic quest to Iceland that completely changed the course of my life. And you've probably heard about our travel company for young people ages 21 to 35, under 30 experiences. Now, this is not a commercial for under 30 experiences. However, I want to share with you the magic of what travel has done for me. You guys have heard me talk about this on different podcasts, speaking all over the world about this and sharing what I learned about myself and about the world with other people, uh, but mainly focused inwardly when I traveled to be able to gain experiences, to be able to you know, really just experience new things that gave me a completely different perspective and propelled me to start taking care of myself mentally, physically, and spiritually, something that I really had never considered before. So, if you are interested on going on your own epic quest, I would love to get to know you better this fall in Bali, Indonesia, September 30th on our yoga and mindfulness retreats. If you have never practiced yoga in your entire life, if you don't know what mindfulness is whatsoever, I really don't care. I think you should come anyway and come to the rice paddies of a, a magical place in Indonesia, Villa Awang Awang, where we're going to give you a real cultural experience with our partners there on the ground, seeing what it's actually life, like to, to be part of a community uh, there in the Balinese village where we're going to stay. Yes, we're going to practice yoga, eat as healthy as we can, get to know one another, and just have an amazing experience and see what comes out of it. So if you want to be part of this, I suggest you check out under30experiences.com and click the link to the yoga retreat on Bali. If you have heard the previous podcast with Luz Garcia, our amazing yoga teacher, She's going to be there. She has over 1,500 hours of yoga teacher training. And I'd really love the opportunity to get to know you, to get to hear your story, and uh, share a week with you in someplace amazing. So if you, want to if you want to commit to changing your life for the better, come join us this fall in Bali.